Hello, welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. Uh, today I am your host, Roland Smith, and uh, I am happy to join you on the interview edition of our podcast. Last week, if you listened to the first episode of season two, uh, you heard Terry, Allen, and Brooklyn tell you about our new format for season two that we're going to try, where we take our podcast and uh, do it in three different types of conversations. And so last week, they had a roundtable discussion, and so you'll see um, a roundtable each week. And then uh, we also are going to have interview segments, uh, which I am hosting today. Is our first one of season two, and um, and then also we will have what we call stories, and stories are these snapshot discussions of how people are joining God in mission around our country and around the world uh, that will inspire us and help us to see. Uh, how the kingdom is being expanded in different ways uh, by different people. So we're glad to have you during season two, and we look forward to um, this year of discussions and conversations about missional practice and about God's kingdom and how we can join him. Today is a really special interview. I am uh, extremely happy to be interviewing uh, Michael Frost, who's one of our co-founders of the Forge Network really around the world, but also uh, obviously a founder uh, of Forge America in an indirect way. Mike has uh, shaped my own personal uh, missional practice, my missional theology, as he has with a lot of people around the world uh, through his writings, his teaching, his mentorship. And so we thought it appropriate to uh, kick off season two with this discussion and this interview uh, with Michael Frost. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, it's good to welcome uh, Mike Frost on the Forge America Missional Podcast. Uh, glad you can join us from Australia, my friend, and uh, hope you're doing well. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. good to talk with you. Yeah. Um, well, hey, we have been in quite a season in the world um, and also in church and our ecclesiology and our methodology of doing church has been uh, totally turned upside down in a lot of different ways uh, for, for people that were not, I would say, missionally prepared, maybe. Um, and, and this whole idea that you have in a book that you helped curate, I thought would be a fascinating thing to kind of talk about in this season, which is um, viewing ourselves as exiles or not. And uh, I know that you helped uh, finished the curation of uh, several papers and presentations into a book that's entitled Not in Kansas Anymore, uh, Christian Faith in a Post-Christian World, uh, down at Moreland College. So I wondered if we could just spend a few minutes and kind of talk about those papers, what your experience was, and this whole idea of exiles, which you've written on extensively as well. Mm. Yeah, well, I'll give you the background to the to this symposium because uh, a long time ago, gosh, what was it, 2005 or six or something like that, I I, um, I wrote a book called Exiles where I, I really was kind of riffing off the work of American uh, theologians like Walter Brueggemann chiefly, but also uh, some of the Anabaptist thinkers like uh, Stanley Hauwas and I've just said, like, you know, well, the church is finding itself no longer at the centre of Western 
culture and civilization. In Europe, Australia, places like that, there's actually been a formal form of Christendom with the kind of a church and the state operating next to each other and, and have been finding over the, you know, the, the 20th and into the 21st century that the, the unraveling of that relationship and the kind of marginalization of the church. America is a little more complicated because actually technically and legally and constitutionally you've never really had Christendom as such. But as you know, I don't need to tell you or any, any of your listeners that there's a de facto form of Christendom that America created with the, the church being the kind of preferred religion status and wielding significant influence and power. So in, in effect, it turns out being a similar kind of arrangement. And, and like Europe, America has been finding that that influence or that that um, that status of the church slipping away and unraveling, and America renegotiating a kind of contract around what religion and statehood and and the like looks like. So you know, we don't, probably don't even need to talk about that. We used to talk about that a lot, but it's now pretty much kind of recognised. Yeah, of course, the church no longer has that sort of preferred religion status that it once had, and so. People like Brueggemann and and others used to say, well, you know, one of the one of the helpful ways to think about this is to have a look at what it was like for the Old Testament exiles, particularly during the Babylonian exile. But he also looks at uh, at Joseph in Egypt and, and Esther in Persia, and and asks, okay, how how did they sustain their faith? How do they, at the end of the day, you know, Daniel, Joseph, and Esther, if you like, the sort of celebrity exiles? How do they? How do they remain faithful and are considered faithful by God? And yet Joseph is about as Egyptian as you can imagine. He's an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife. He's riding around in a chariot. I mean, you know, he's, he's reconfiguring and restructuring the whole agricultural system of, of Egypt. I mean, you know, how does he manage to enter so fully into Egyptian culture but still remain a faithful follower of Yahweh. Likewise with Daniel in Babylon, although that is a much more complicated and and a, a longer kind of process. We hear a lot about kind of in and out of favour in, in the court of Babylon. And then Esther, again, given her gender, a whole other set of kind of struggles to have to deal with uh, in, in terms of exerting influence but remaining uh, a a citizen of Persia. So he says, well, let's have a look at them. Let's have a look at Isaiah and, and or Isaiah and uh, the exilic literature and ask ourselves, how do they sustain their, their faith but remain present in the pagan cultures that they were part of? And so I was inspired by that. I wrote that book um, talking about what it looks like for us in a post-Christian world. And then more recently in my country, in Australia, a few other scholars have pushed back on that and said, well, one in particular said, well, what Frosty was writing about was like, hey, the culture is friendly to us and so, um, you know, let's go out there, make friends, let's just be cool. Um, you know, we're in exile, sure, stop throwing your Christian weight around, like let's enter into kind of life and the culture will welcome us and we'll make a good contribution. And then he was saying, and particularly, he's a, he's a more conservative theologically more conservative man than me, he was saying, ah, ah, it ain't like that at all. It's like it is a really vicious, cruel, totally anti-Christian, humanistic, secular culture. And he was particularly motivated, I think, around uh, about the legalisation of same-sex marriage, which, you know, people like Rod Dreyer and others have been. It's kind of like, well, that's the last straw. Like that's mm -hmm. that just 
approves it. It's not a friendly culture. It's not a it's not a um, a neutral or a benign culture into which Christians can go and exercise influence like everyone else. Actually, we're 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 uh, prejud- they're prejudiced against us. There's there's actually animosity, wherein he referred to it as exile phase two, and it's a really frightening and and difficult and painful place. And he ends up in a kind of Rod Dreyer place, which is a sort of a a Benedictine uh, option kind of thing. And that is to say, we need to like pull out, sit in culture, but to one side, kind of hunker down, become more faithful disciple ourselves and kind of ride this out, maybe a better day is coming. And then another scholar, um, a woman named Catherine Harrison Brennan, who said, actually, no, nah, we shouldn't be doing that. We're not in exile. Exile means to say that we, that, that, uh, we don't have a home, um, that we're not at home anymore, but actually our home is the earth. The earth is the Lord's. Uh, our ultimate home is in the in the age to come with the return of Christ. And Frosty and McAlpine, this other guy, uh, both of those guys are, are, are leading us away from what's a helpful kind of way of thinking about culture. And so she's an Anglican woman, but uh, so she's calling us much more into a place of making significant contribution to culture and dropping the exile language altogether. So they were the three kind of if you like positions, no exile, my kind of friendly exile, Stephen McAlpine, mm-hmm. we're in a shitstorm exile. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were the gradients of the conversation. Yeah, her, uh, her paper was, uh, her, part, her chapter in the book was, uh, I, I found it really interesting. I mean, but boy, she comes out of the gates uh, swinging on <laughs> some stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, for, for an Anglican, uh, Anglican priest. Um, well, so in terms of, uh, obviously a lot of the narrative in the book and the, the metaphors coming off of, um, Jeremiah talking to Israel and, um, you know, being a blessing to the city, um, you know, making homes, planning things, being part of the culture. What, where do you think the symposium uh, I guess you had it all in one day. Is that right? Did everyone present yeah. in one day? So, right. so when you walked away from that, did you have did you have a sense of um, a common thought, or was everyone just uh, a little bit different in their interpretations and how they looked at that? Well, I mean, I've just I've just shared the kind of the three central um, positions, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, as you know, there was a as an Aboriginal woman who wrote a paper about well, wait a second, like Indigenous Australians are at home. This is our home. You stole it from us and now you're telling us you're not at home here. And So she had a really stimulating paper about just what, from an Indigenous point of view, what, what home and land and things like that look like. So uh, plus there are all sorts of other papers around kind of um, uh, elements of that broader discussion. So in answer to your question, no, there wasn't like, let's vote now, which one are we with? There was really a, mm. here's a symposium of ideas um, for you to, to sort of reflect on and respond to. Personally, Roland, I think that Catherine, uh, or Kate as she's called, uh, and her position that we're not in exile, 
that even though, as you say, she comes out of the gates like there's no place for exile and it's actually very dangerous for you to use language like that, it is full on the way she begins. She ends up, as you say, with Jeremiah and about being a blessing to the nation and like planting our fields and contributing to, to culture. And, and that's exactly where I end up. I mean, that's exactly what I say. And I think exactly what Brueggemann and people like that say. It's like, no, you're not at home. Babylon is not your home. This is not where you're, you're meant uh, to be. But this is not going to be a short exile. You're not here just as a slap on the wrist and you'll get to go back and it'll all be normal again. Actually, settle down here. You're here for a while and you need to learn what it means to be at home, inverted mm -hmm. in a land that's not your own, with no temple and no priesthood and no king and no, none of the scaffolding, cultural scaffolding, that affirms your faith in Yahweh. All that's unraveled. Now you've got to actually discover what does faith in Yahweh look like if you can't rely on the temple and the feasts and, and all the, the normal kind of cultural scaffolding that helps to sustain that. We'll take all that away. We'll put you in Babylon. You'll be servants or slaves to pagan people and figure it out. Is Yahweh still the one true and only God? And you know, most Old Testament scholars and, and indeed historians would say, what Israel discovers in Babylon about their God and their faith is something they could never have really discovered safe in, in Israel and, and in Jerusalem. So, and so the prophecy ends up saying to them, so there are things to learn here, settle down, plant fields, contribute to culture, be good neighbours. Uh, there are things to learn. So be at home in a place that's not your home. Now, that's pretty much where Kate ends up, and that's where my book Exiles ends up as well. It talks about what it looks like for us to be Joseph or Daniel, um, to be fully American or fully Australian or wherever the culture might be, to enter into it, to contribute to it, to work hard, to contribute to economy, to contribute to culture, to, to be very present and to model what true life and love and relationship with God looks like, but to do it out in the open and uh, to do it with less and less of the kind of cultural support and cultural struts that the church has so often relied upon. Now, I mean, the last time you and I talked, we were talking about the effects of COVID and that just takes it to level 2.0. Like that's just like, oh, okay, now we, we can't even meet you know, in our church building anymore. We, it's like everything's unraveling. And again, as I said to you then, or we said to each other back then, actually there's no bad thing for us to have to rediscover what it means to, for us to, to truly be the people of God without having to rely on all the things that, that in some ways become what it means to be Christian. You take them away and it's like, is there anything to being Christian if we can't do these things? And actually the answer is yes, but sometimes you need those things to be taken away for you to discover them. Yeah, it, it, isn't, the, isn't it interesting? That's the exact message, of, I think, of Jeremiah to Israel at that point was, you know, without all the scaffolding, as you were, as you were saying, uh, you are still the people of God, even though you're making a home in another place. And and so metaphorically, you know, even pre-COVID, were we not losing a little bit of scaffolding at a you know, at a time, a little bit each uh, each year, each decade, where um, culture, government, whatever, is not 
supportive, as supportive of the church. And so we feel more and more like exiles. And then all of a sudden COVID hits. And like you said, it's, it's 2.0. It's like 5.0 you know, where, where all of a sudden, you know, you can't, you can't meet, you can't, the, sca- the scaffolding and the framework is like blown apart because so many churches, uh, their, their uh, organizing principle or their organizing scaffolding is that Sunday worship service. And when you can't do that, then you have to ask, okay, how do we still be the people of God? And so uh, that's yeah, I mean, what I mean, have a look at, I don't look at the way some Christians react, which is like with fury. Like how can the state tell us that we can't meet? How can the state tell us that we can't, you know, have more than so many people in our homes and, you know, all this kind of business? And you think, well, how would exiles actually respond? It would be like, bring it on, state. Like, do your worst to us. Like, we're indefatigable. Like, we're unstoppable. I mean, you know, we will find ways to meet. We will find ways to worship. We'll find ways to kind of be... God's presence in this world. I mean, the idea that we go to pieces, like we literally we become in, like inflamed with outrage when, you know, this gets taken away or that gets, and, and then it's, they're being taken away as a matter of public health, not because it's a persecution against Christians, but really what exiles should be like is people who recognise actually you can take it all away and we still know how to be the people of God. And, you know, this I don't really touch on this in any of the stuff I've written, but Alan Hirsch in The Forgotten Ways, you know, talks at the beginning of that book about the Chinese church. It's like, well, they, they killed all of our priests. They took away all your theological colleges. They, they turned all of your churches into into uh, public buildings or handed them over to the rich people or whatever the case may be. It's like, just took away everything that makes the church the church. And guess what? The church is still the church, only even more the church at the end of of all of that kind of persecution. I mean, what we're going through during COVID is not persecution, but it is a, a healthy reminder to us of what it means for us to, to be the people of God without having to have kind of the cultural supports necessarily for that to be the case. Now, in saying this, I think the church should meet, and I think it is a matter of grief that we can't all be together on a Sunday or a a house church meeting or depending on what level of restrictions you have. That is a matter of grief and sadness, and meeting together online, it's not the same. I mean, I understand all of those things. So a little grief for a while until things return to whatever normal looks like, I understand that. But outrage or fury or feeling as though the church is under attack, where where's our strength and our confidence come from? What does it mean for us to be the people of God? And the end of Christendom and the unraveling of our preferred religion status, which is more advanced in some parts of America than, than others, I realise. Uh, and now with COVID, I think these things actually could be uh, uh, good things for us to recover our essential nature of what it is to be the people of God. That being said, if we look at the example of Daniel as the great... Um, Uh, exile. There are times when, you know, his capacity for prophecy or dream interpretation, it's like, you know, you're the man. and Like, he's given enormous influence and responsibility. Other times you find, you know, he knows he's out of favour. He's at the edge of, of the court. Like, he's overlooked and he gets brought back again. And sometimes... He has, I mean, it's basically, it's a two-step. He's continually having to do this risky negotiation about what it means for him to be a follower of Yahweh, you know, at the 
the court of, of Babylon. And um, I, I don't think that's a bad analogy for what it means for us likewise. I mean, there will be people listening to this who will say, in my workplace, you know, in my interactions in, in the, the school system where I teach or the university where I teach or the, you know, the government department that I, that I serve, uh, I'm constantly having to, you know, make these little adjustments depending on what kind of new rules or policies come in. I, I acknowledge that. That's one of the things that that guy, Stephen McAlpine, who was going for the, like, the hardcore, you know, exile phase two, that was one of the things he was saying. It's like, come on. You know, a lot of, a lot of our society is not at the least bit friendly to us. They're actually, they hate us. And so I don't want to minimise that. I think he's on to something there. There are, there are lots of people who might listen to this who might say, well, actually, it's really, really difficult. I feel like I'm at the, the court of, you know, Belshazzar. I feel like, you know, this is not an easy place for me to be a follower of Yahweh. And I don't just get kind of mocked and laughed at because I, I'm a church person. There are actually policies being instituted that actually make it difficult for me to, to be faithful to God. So, I mean, I acknowledge that. I recognise in some places it is much more difficult than in others. But I still think that the same bottom line is actually let's find where our confidence comes from. Let's trust that God is present. And it might mean that we need to renegotiate what it means to look holy in this world. I mean, our view of holiness has often been like the monk or the priest, you know, the the separated one, the one who dresses differently, who looks different, uh, who, who is completely other to mainstream society. That's... That's godliness, St. Francis of Assisi, something like that. But Daniel and Joseph, as I said to you before, they have Egyptian names they, or Babylonian names. They, have, they dress, they act, they eat, they enter fully into the culture they're part of. Jewish forms of holiness are not quite the same as the more pietistic Catholic ones that we often think about when we think about being in culture but not of the culture. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you say to um, pastors that, that are out there kind of struggling with this time right now? I mean, because I know you're, I mean, you're a missiologist and you, you primarily teach that, but you're also an ecclesiologist, really. I mean, you and Alan have written, um, wrote a book that, that has shaped a lot of that thinking and you've you planted and pastored a church for a while. And so I know that you've lived in those shoes. And so you can imagine uh, the pastor of, you know, not a mega church with lots of different ways to connect with people, but, you know, 150 people, a hundred people that um, they're finding it hard to stay connected. So how, how do they live feeling like uh, they're dispersed and exiled and um, during this time? Uh, well, I mean, there'd be all sorts of practical answers to that. The bottom line, I think, is to, to, for them to think in terms of the fact that this might very well be the new normal. And I don't mean the actual restrictions, because something will happen. I mean, either the, this virus is going to flame itself out or we'll just become kind of used to managing it or there'll be a vaccine. So something will change and there will be a new normal after this. But... Um, but I do think in some respects we're being challenged to reconsider what it means for us to connect as Christian people. And 
the reliance on attendance at a Sunday meeting and maybe a home group meeting, that's been our de facto way of like taking role, if you like. You know, I mean, how's how's Roland and Kitty? Are they okay? Oh yeah, yeah, we saw them in church last Sunday. Like that's how we I mean, you could be falling apart. We, you know, who knows what's going on at the Smith household, but oh yeah, you were in church last Sunday. So all is well, you know, and in a way, they're not being at church last Sunday, or depending on your restrictions. Um, it's meant, how do we know if the Smiths are all right? I mean, how do we know what's happening with them? And it's forced, I think it's forcing pastors to reconsider what that level of connection should look like. And I think, you know, I mean, back in the day, of course, you might remember when pastors made home visits and called by and there was, you know, much more, well, vigilance, I guess, pastoral sort of vigilance. And, and of course, society changed. Women began working more. Families were more dispersed. I mean, things changed. I understand why that's not the case. And neither am I suggesting we go back to that. But maybe the rediscovery of lots of, of multiple portals for connection through phone, internet, visiting, meetings, um, you know, how, how do we reconnect? I mean, do the good old-fashioned meat and potatoes pastoral work of being attentive to and present among your people. Find ways to do that. There are lots of ways to do it. And don't assume that just if we've seen the frosts turn up at our meeting on Sunday that they're necessarily doing okay in this. And in saying that, I'm not being con- I'm not condemning pastors as not doing work. They do do the work. But it might well be that throughout all of this they discover I could do half as much work on a sermon and make it half as long and provide all sorts of materials for learning online and then I'm able to connect much more, lots of little touching base with people, more than just the kind of the the big deal of seeing them on a Sunday. So I think it's going to have implications for pastoral care and for Christian education, discipleship, all of which, if are managed well, could actually kind of take us back to kind of a really beautiful place, you know, mm-hmm. an updated, a modernised, a technologised approach to to the beautiful work of pastoral care. Yeah, we uh, we just did a, a survey. We used uh, you know Survey Monkey that a lot of people use and send it out to our our community, which is you know probably eight hundred to a thousand with kids and. Um, and it was, you know, to check on their hearts and their lives and how they're doing, but to also kind of get a, I don't know, to get a little bit of a litmus test on what they were thinking as far as wanting to gather, being cautious, uh, you know, are they chomping at the bit to kind of get back in the building or not so much? And uh, what we had noticed uh, was that even though we were able to have 175 in each service because of the the size of the room that we were, we weren't hitting capacity even close to it. Um, and so uh, it kind of makes you wonder, but our, but our online viewership was way, 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 way up. And so um, interestingly enough, um, a larger percentage are kind of waiting or not ready to meet than are kind of chomping at the bit to get back in the building. And we've, we've been kind of thinking that, that's the that's going to be the new normal, you know. Is yeah. Well, I mean, I mean that, that's borne out by Barna's research that says something like twenty five percent of Americans have just not connected online at all. I mean, they're just 
they're dropping out, not dropping out like, you know, I'm out of the faith, but just like, I'll wait till this talk over and then reconnect afterwards. And interestingly enough, and I was talking to a bunch of uh, people the other day in their kind of 20s, and I was telling them, interestingly, the research says that um, millennials have the least take up, like they do not enjoy kind of Zoom church or, or live stream. And they're all, all these kids I was talking to are like, totally, that is not us. Like, you know, we're SMS and, and, and texting and TikToking and, you know, we're connecting in multiple ways. It's almost like bunches of different facets that we connect in with our network. So this idea I'm going to sit in front of a screen and, you know, have a, an hour-long meeting with a whole bunch, no, that, that is not the way they operate. In a way they like multifaceted, kind of shorter, more intense kind of connection. And so, yeah, that's a challenge for pastors to think through, well, what does it look like to actually establish systems where there's lots of connection points and um, as well as more significant and meaningful opportunities for me to actually hear how are you, how can I help you, how can the church support you? Um, that'll be the on, ongoing challenge. Um, you know, the church I belong at, there's, you know, they, they meet on a, on a Sunday. Uh, they have been doing live streaming now, like you. There's there's a smaller meeting in the church building because of the size and it's hybridised with, with live streaming and there's no singing and you got to wear a mask. And, I mean, it just doesn't feel like church to me, Roland. Yeah. So uh, those, I think, the people who are going are feeling like kind of should, like, to... You know, like cheer for my team, as it were, but I don't get anything out of it. And you think, okay, well, what is this telling us? You know, uh, exiles have to learn more interesting ways of connection and faith sustaining. I mean, the interesting thing, uh, Roland, is that a number of the kind of Jewish festivals, and in fact, even the Sabbath meal, really took root in Babylon because if you don't have a temple, if you don't have a priesthood and you can't go where professionals kind of deliver a, you know, a religious uh, ritual or experience for you, what's your only option? It's like, okay, well, let's eat on Friday night. Let's, let's let eat this meal and the father will say certain words or retell the story. And, we'll eat. and over the period of time, actually in exile, the beauty of the kind of a Sabbath meal began to kind of really form. It, 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 it developed when they were back in, in Israel, but in a way they discovered ways to be Jewish uh, when they were in a culture that was definitely not Jewish. And even some of the festivals began that, that way as well. So just as they had to discover kind of alternative ways of sustaining their faith in a culture that didn't, um, didn't congratulate them for it, Likewise, I think COVID is, uh, as well as the breakdown of Christendom, is forcing us to, to discover something. And I hope, you know, actually out of this comes some really significant, like, big moves forward for the way we rethink church. I mean, how long, I mean, you know, you would know as well as I do how long people have been talking about the technology revolution and about how education will be totally different and how, how community, how everything will be changed and yet the change seems so slow and so cumbersome. In my sector, the education sector, I've been talking about online learning forever. It'll never, everything will be different or in a new era, but things are still pretty much the same until 
until they said, you know, shut it all down. And then all of a sudden, wow, look at all the things you can do online. And so in a way it's like it, we needed this to kind of actually propel us into the future. Yeah. I mean, and there's a, there's a opposite part of that too I was thinking about was that it like personally this whole thing has caused me to have to slow down. I, I, there's just not as many things as I can do. There's not as many meetings I can have or go to or whatever. And so my whole life has slowed down. And what I have learned are some better rhythms, uh, even spiritually in my own life. And I hear that kind of across the board with people. Um, and so, I, you know, I wonder if churches will pick up on that organizationally. Like, you know, we don't have to have 50 million things going on at the campus for people to do. You know, let's concentrate on, on, on gathering once a week and, and taking care of our kids and our teens and then being on mission together, you know, like our people kind of learned while they were in the neighborhood. And so, um, yeah, we, we talk about this as an opportunity, you know, at, you know on our staff. Um, we don't know exactly what to do, but we talk a lot about being a decentralized church from here on out. And hopefully, um, mission uh, becomes balanced, you know, in the, in the planning calendar of the church. And so um, that's, that's what I'm hoping comes out of this for, for a lot of faith communities. Yeah, and I, I hope pastors take that seriously because, yeah, I, I totally related to what you were saying about more time, you know, more flex in, in the system. Like, I, I was working, well, I am working full-time at, at a theological college, and on top of that I was writing books and travelling overseas and speaking at conferences, and so all of that stuff has basically, you know, shut down. And so that kind of, um, that capacity for... Uh, flexibility in the system or, or the the the, uh, the schedule it does allow for kind of social socializing interacting uh, with the neighbors uh, as well as developing kind of deeper connection with God but what churches are actually providing me with any support for that I mean our, our church is actually kind of you know, saying to their congregation, you know, here's a prayer cycle that you might like to use, or you know, here's a here's an idea for a way to kind of serve your neighbours. Like, even if those things are shared online, even if it's like you know, the, the church website, rather than being a static, come to church, we meet at ten a.m. Here's the pictures of our pastors. What if our our, our church website actually became a resource to people? It's like, mm. hey, I go to the church website quite. There's this prayer cycle there. There's this kind of worship experience that you can have privately in your own home. There's ideas for what to do with you. There's a thing you can download and print it out and hand it out to your neighbour. Like, you know, what would, what would happen if we actually started to take seriously the fact that people have this level of, of flexibility and started providing myriad kind of resources rather than just saying, oh, you've got lots of extra time now. Well, figure it out, you know. Get closer to God. Get closer to your neighbours. Yeah, I've wondered uh, if the church shouldn't produce more content than it's producing. And I don't mean like more worship services, but exactly what you're talking about. So kind of a, a plethora of, of various content so that, you know, a small group or a family or uh, whatever can can pick and choose different things and create their own rhythms um, during all of this. So, yeah. 
Well, hey, I, uh, I appreciate you being with us today. And uh, I want to encourage everyone that's listening um, to pick this up, Not in Kansas Anymore, um, edited by Michael Frost, Daryl Jackson, and David Starling. And um, you can find it on Amazon and all the places that you can uh, order books. I guess Morling Press uh, put it out, published it. Um, but it's well worth the read, and it'll it'll kind of shake your thinking about uh, Jeremiah, that passage that we're all so familiar with, and the whole thought process around um, being exiles or not exiles or wherever you are on that continuum. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there that day. Um, so thanks for being with us, Mike. Any any parting yeah, thoughts from down under? Parting thoughts, no, no, just all power to the Forge tribe there. I mean, um, uh, actually, uh, as you were saying before, you know, uh, theological education and church equipping and discipleship, but also kind of missional equipping, like it's an opportunity for Forge to continue to really step into this situation when, when churches are not sure how to do it. And I, I hear that from pastors all the time. Like, what do you got? Like, what, what can we use? What, what's like? You know, Forge could be a real resource to the churches in the cities where the hubs happen to find themselves. Like, you know, there's there's stuff we know. Like, let's let's share it with those churches that are now ready to discover it. Yeah, that's a good word. Great word. Okay, well, uh, be be safe down there and stay healthy. And uh, we will we will talk to you soon. You have a you have another book coming out in October, right? What's the Title I do, I do. I have a book on, uh, it's called um, uh, Hide This in Your Heart. Yeah, it's about taking scripture in in to your body and soul and mind. And uh, it's a bit of an unusual book for me in a sense, but I was kind of led into this with by my co-author, uh, Graham Hill. So you and I were talking earlier, it'd be great if if Graham Hill and I could chat with you about that and uh, and let the Forge guys know all about it. Yeah, well, we'll we'll work on uh, making that happen. Look forward to it coming out. Okay, well, uh, best wishes to you, my friend, and we will talk to you later. Okay. Good to see you, Face. Uh You too. Bye-bye.